I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about cases on deck for argument, the Scalia Papers, and we sit down with Fifth Circuit Judge Kurt Engelhardt. So the justices are coming back next week. They'll start hearing oral arguments again after their extended winter break. And while they were out on break, a few of the justices were out on the speaking circuit. So earlier this month, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas spoke at the dedication of the Nathan Deal Judicial Center in his home state of Georgia. Uh, The Georgia Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals are located in this new building. So Justice Thomas gave a keynote speech, which – that's pretty pretty newsworthy. He he pretty rarely gives keynote speeches. Yeah. Uh, and he talked about the importance of judges showing courage to uphold the rule of law even when the outcome may not be popular. Uh, he had a great line from the uh, news reports that I saw. He said, our decisions should not be driven by a desire to be revered or lionized for reaching certain outcomes. We are not mass media icons. We are judges, nothing more and nothing less. So perhaps he was throwing some shade on a few of his colleagues, including Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was also out and about giving speeches. Uh, she attended an event celebrating the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment at Georgetown University Law Center. And the notorious RBG threw some cold water on the recent effort to revive the Equal Rights Amendment. At that event, she said that she would like to see a new beginning and she'd like it to start over. She said uh, there's too much controversy about latecomers, uh, referring to you know the, the recent passage in Virginia of the Equal Rights Amendment. And she said, plus, a number of states have withdrawn their ratification. So if you count a latecomer on the plus side, how can you disregard states that said we've changed our minds? So we'll see how this uh, plays into the the ongoing litigation over the Equal Rights Amendment, which I won't ask Tiffany to comment on because her firm is involved in in some of that litigation. Uh, This month also, curators at Harvard Law School released the first set of Justice Scalia's papers. So his personal papers include personal correspondence, photographs, and court files, among other items from his time on the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court. I looked at a couple of the, the pictures that were posted and I saw this great picture of Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg dressed up in um, fancy costumes for the <laughs> opera and also a photo of Justice Scalia hunting with Justice Kagan, among some other things. So the Scalia family had donated his papers to the school in 2017. This is a common practice for justices to donate their papers to an institution, to curate them, and then eventually release them to the public. Uh, the curators say that uh, Justice Scalia's papers consist of 40 linear feet of records, um, which seems pretty like a lot of papers to go through. Um, <laughs> and those papers are going to be released over the next 40 years. So it's also a common practice to restrict large portions of documents based on timing or based on lifetimes of certain people. Um, so, for example, a justice could say, I don't want these papers released until – you know, 20 years after the death of this other justice who Mm -hmm. they may have talked about. I think uh, with the death of Justice Stevens this past year, that triggered the release of um, a new set of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist papers. Oh, interesting. As an example. Yeah. Um, So according to Harvard Law, Justice Marshall's papers were opened immediately upon his death in 1993. But after that, most justices have requested significant parts to be closed um, so long as the colleagues they served with are alive. Um, A couple of exceptions to note um, that they noted uh, in the course of this was that none of Justice Souter's papers will be released until 50 years after his death. 
um, which I thought was interesting. Very suitor esque. <laughs> yeah. Um, as for Justice Scalia's papers, the curator noted that he was struck by the number of events for which Scalia was a speaker and that he otherwise attended. And he was also surprised at, by how outdoorsy Scalia was, which I found interesting. Uh, so another set of these papers um, from the year 1990 should be ready in 2021. So we look forward to those. Well, turning to uh, the oral arguments that are coming up, the court will be back on Monday and they'll hear four oral arguments next week. So the first is a uh, consolidated case, uh, U.S. Forest Service versus Cowpasture River Preservation Association and Atlantic Coast Pipeline LLC versus Cowpasture River Preservation Association. Try to say that <laughs> three times fast. Uh, so the issue there is whether the Forest Service has the authority to grant rights of way under the Mineral Leasing Act through lands traversed by the Appalachian Trail within national forests. So uh, this stems from the building of an $8 billion, 600-mile pipeline that would carry fracked natural gas from West Virginia to the coast of Virginia and into North Carolina. So the Forest Service issued a special use permit for the pipeline to run under a portion of the Appalachian Trail in the George Washington National Forest in Virginia. And this was challenged by environmental groups and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found that the Forest Service does not have the authority to authorize a right-of-way under the Appalachian Trail because the trail falls within the national park system. So um, – at the Supreme Court, environmental groups say that the uh, Mineral Leasing Act says that no agency can authorize a pipeline on lands in the national park system. The The forest system, for its part, argues that the Appalachian Trail is not land. It's just a right-of-way, so it's not within the Park Service's jurisdiction. So if the Supreme Court upholds the Fourth Circuit's ruling, this could have huge implications for energy projects uh, given the scope of the a Appalachian Trail. It runs from Georgia to Maine and mostly through federal land. Uh, so we'll see if there are any fireworks at that uh, at that argument. And then uh, another argument next week is Opati versus Sudan. And the issue is whether the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act applies retroactively, permitting recovery of punitive damages against foreign states for terrorist activities occurring prior to the passage of the current version of the statute. So the court held that an earlier version of the act applied retroactively uh, to allow a suit to recover valuable artwork that had been seized uh, by the Nazis during World War II. Um, that version of the act was passed in 1976. So the Opati case involves um, – stems from al-Qaeda bombings near the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya that killed 200 people and injured many more in 1998. Uh, so victims and family members are seeking to recover damages from Sudan for supporting al-Qaeda. The D.C. Circuit overturned a $4.3 billion uh, punitive damages award by the district court holding that Congress did not authorize punitive damages for victims of terrorism until the 2008 amendment to the Foreign uh, Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, so the government, the federal government has weighed in on the side of the plaintiffs in this case, saying that Congress was clear that the 2008 amendment would apply retroactively. Uh, the government points out that President Bush had actually vetoed an earlier version of the bill because of concerns that it would have put the Iraq government on the hook for acts uh, committed by Saddam Hussein uh, when he was in power. And uh, Justice Kavanaugh is recused from this case because it came from the D.C. Circuit when he was there. So we'll see how that argument goes. The court will also hear U.S. versus Sinanang Smith. And the question there is whether the federal criminal prohibition against encouraging or inducing illegal immigration for commercial advantage or private financial gains 
is facially unconstitutional. So federal law makes it a crime to encourage or induce illegal immigration for commercial advantage or private financial gain. And a woman in California was convicted under that statute for essentially tricking aliens who are unlawfully present um, into believing that she could help them get their permanent resident status if they hired her. The Ninth Circuit threw out her conviction and struck down the statute, holding that it was unconstitutionally overbroad under the First Amendment. So the government um, at the Supreme Court argues that the prohibition on encouraging or inducing, which are the important words in the statute, is a traditional narrow statute that prohibits um, essentially aiding and abetting. But the respondent argues that this is a constitutionally overbroad statute that sweeps in a broad swath of protected speech and expression, um, including, uh, you know, acting as a lawyer and things like that. So interesting statutory question. And I know a lot of uh, unique amicus have weighed in, including a lot of uh, libertarian groups like Mm. Cato um, on the side of a respondent in this case. So definitely an interesting one to watch. The court will also hear Lomax versus Ortiz Marquez, and the question there is whether a dismissal without prejudice for failure to state a claim counts as a strike under 28 U.S.C. 1915G. So the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1995 has a three strikes provision, which says that a prisoner can't qualify for in forma pauperis status, which is um, a status that allows you to basically proceed without without paying court fees and things like that. Um, so you can't qualify for that if three or more of their previous actions or appeals were dismissed on certain specified grounds. So the purpose of that rule, as stated by the Supreme Court in Coleman versus Tolufson, which is a 2015 case, is to, quote, filter out the bad claims filed by prisoners and facilitate consideration of the good. So basically, prisoners only get so many chances to file legitimate claims because otherwise they're just continually filing kind of frivolous things. To file Um, them for free or at low cost. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And so the issue in this case is whether it counts as one of those so-called bad claims when a judge dismisses a prisoner's case for failure to state a claim and does it without prejudice, which means – without prejudice means that the prisoner could bring his claims again. They're not dismissed forever. So another interesting question could have a pretty big effect, especially in the the circuit courts where, you know, I saw a lot of these sorts of cases as a clerk. They're always making their way through the courts. Well, I recently spoke with Judge Kurt Engelhardt. Kurt Engelhardt is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Judge Engelhardt, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to speak with you today. So your chambers are in New Orleans. What are your, some of your favorite spots in the city? Well, of course, New Orleans has a lot of great restaurants, uh, wonderful places to go eat. Uh, also a lot of architecture, interesting history, and I'm kind of a history geek. So uh, there's a lot of things here to see that uh, have importance over the course of all the way back to the founding of the city through the Civil War and on up through current times uh, Consequently, a lot of movies have been filming down here because of the interesting architecture and the layout of the city. Now, with Mardi Gras coming up, where do locals go to celebrate? 
Well, Mardi Gras is usually all around South Louisiana, and all of the traditional celebrations are different. You can pretty much find whatever you're looking for. My favorite place is St. Charles Avenue under the Oaks. Uh, there are parades that pass there almost every day for, uh, well, several weekends in a row, and the last few days, five or six days in a row. Uh, it's a very family-oriented Mardi Gras. It's, uh, <laughs> a, it's a beautiful place to see a parade. Now, the Bywater is is an area on the, on the other side of the French Quarter, and it's also a very old part of town, but they have a celebration uh, that's a little bit different. And then, of course, there's the French Quarter, and uh, that can be over the top and a bit raw. Um, that, that's the part that probably most people are familiar with. Um, you know, one thing about Mardi Gras, when I think of how uh, some of the debauchery that goes on in the French Quarter, a lot of people don't realize that Mardi Gras is a religious holiday. It's, <laughs> it's based upon Lent and what you sacrifice for Lent, you know, before the Lenten season, it's always on the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. That's why it's not a fixed date on the calendar. Um, so it's kind of interesting that a holiday that has become known for such great excess in every respect is really one that's rooted in our local uh, Catholic uh, and, and Christian traditions. Now, where's the best place to get a king cake in New Orleans? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Uh, I, I went on a mission this year to get my clerks to find the best king cake, and I started it by buying two one from a bakery right up the street from our courthouse here. Uh, as you know, the Fifth Circuit building is in New Orleans. The court is seated in New Orleans. Uh, so I went up the street and purchased a king cake there, and we all agreed it was a little dry. And then I went to the grocery store in the other direction, and we got one there that we kind of liked. My clerk uh, this just this week brought in a king cake from a Vietnamese bakery called Dong Phong, Uh and that one is actually pretty good. It's almost like a croissant. Uh, that one we've been enjoying. I think there's only a little tiny piece left in the kitchen as I speak. So uh, that's a great one. But they have king cakes at almost every bakery here in New Orleans, and they all have a little different spin. Some of them are stuffed with fruit and cream cheese and things like that. But I'm a traditionalist. I like the plain regular king cake with nothing in it. Now, has anybody found the baby in the one you guys have been eating this week? <laughs> well, funny you should ask that as well, because now the people who bake the king cakes uh, put the baby in the package so that after you buy it, you can stick it underneath into the cake. Now, when I was a kid growing up in New Orleans, the baby was baked into the cake yeah. or a bean or something like that was baked into the cake. So they've kind of taken all the fun out of it. And of course, uh, many of us blame lawyers for it because somebody <laughs> bit into a king cake and bit the baby and broke a tooth or something. So, uh, But we do have a bunch of little plastic king cake babies in my kitchen here in Chambers that have uh, uh, come out of king cakes. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the tradition is whoever gets the baby uh, has to bring the next king cake. <laughs> so speaking of your chambers, other than a collection of, of uh, king cake babies from over the years, uh, what other things do you have in your chambers that reflect where you're from or your personality? Well, I have, of course, my two commissions, one from uh, my district court uh, appointment and the other most recently to the circuit court. Uh, I also have two football helmets here. One is a New Orleans Saints helmet and another one is an LSU helmet. Um, I have all of my bookshelves. I'm a hardcover book person. Uh, in other words, not a Kindle person. So I have <laughs> a load of history books here, mostly biographies that I really enjoy and I keep them as sort of a collection 
Not that I intend to read all of them again, but uh, I keep those. Uh, the other thing that I have here uh, that I guess reflects on my upbringing here in New Orleans, I love local music. Uh, all the way back to the Dixieland uh, jazz days of Buddy Bolden and Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong, through all of the current people like uh, Trombone Shorty. Uh, and so I have, uh, I shouldn't admit to this, but I have a CD player, which I understand is not in vogue anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a CD player and I have a collection of CDs. And if my clerks come in early enough, I'm an early bird, they can actually hear me listening to some of those as I get my morning work done before the actual workday starts. So are you reading a biography right now? Uh, right now, let's see. I have one uh, about uh, Bonhoeffer that actually Clarence Thomas had suggested some time ago uh, at the Fifth Circuit Conference, and I just haven't gotten around to reading it, but it's about uh, a gentleman by the name of Bonhoeffer. Uh, and uh, so I'm anxious to start reading that. I've just barely scratched the surface of it. I'll have to see if I can dig that up and check it out. All yeah, right. it's it's uh, he 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 spoke very highly about it. Uh, so I'm anxious to roll up my sleeves if I can find some time between my docket <laughs> reading. <laughs> of course. All right. Turning to your career, uh, while you were in private practice, you served on Louisiana's Judiciary Commission, the body that hears formal charges lodged against state court judges. So tell me about that experience. Well, you know, Elizabeth, I have to credit the Judiciary Commission for getting me interested in a career as a judge, um, I got appointed through the judge that I clerked for, who was a state appellate judge. He submitted my name, and I got chosen to serve as a, a lawyer member. There are three three lawyers, three state judges, and three lay people. And that commission, as you might expect, hears complaints about ethical conduct against state judges. So during the course of that, I, I served two terms on that, so it was a total of six years. Um, the variety of complaints uh, were anything from disgruntled litigants, of course, <laughs> all the way through more significant things. Uh, you know, judges are human beings, and uh, things like in, intemperance or, or uh, domestic problems, um, substance abuse, things like that. Uh, so we had those more serious problems. Um, but I, it really got me interested in how we resolve disputes and who are these people, like I say, regular human beings who sit on the bench and make very important decisions about anything from child custody to huge tort, tort cases, um, and what sort of limitations judges live under. Should they not be seen in certain places? Should they not associate with certain people and obviously things that they can't say? You know, so they have somewhat of a more cloistered lifestyle, and I really got interested in what judges do when I was on the Judiciary Commission. Now, are there any particularly sensational cases you could mention, without outing the judge, of course? <laughs> well, some of these were already made public. Uh, one of the funnier ones that we had was a justice of the peace uh, who uh, thought it would be a great idea, I guess, taking off on the Vegas Elvis uh weddings, decided that he could offer to do weddings, which, of course, justices of the peace can do. But his twist on it was that if you paid him a little extra, you could get him to wear a gorilla suit <laughs> while he performed the ceremony. And, of course, the Judiciary Commission took a dim view of that. We didn't want our state uh, judges uh, getting ideas that they could do things in costume. It didn't reflect well on the judiciary. So we had things like that. Um, a lot of judicial demeanor cases, 
uh, where judges were treating lawyers or uh, criminal defendants um, a certain way or saying things that were just inappropriate um, on the record. So we had those types of things. Um, some financial type issues. Also, letters of recommendation. Could judges write letters of recommendation? We had one case where a local state court judge wrote a letter to Judge Clement, who mm-hmm. who's on my court now, but who was on the Eastern District of Louisiana, where, where I came from. But he wrote to her vouching for a, a criminal defendant who had been convicted uh, in a racketeering case. It was sort of a, a mob-oriented racketeering case, and he was writing a letter seeking leniency, sort of a character reference. Uh, and so that was that was a no-no as well on court stationery, to no less. <laughs> um, and then, as I said, you know, seeing judges operate uh, when they have family problems, uh, whether it's domestic problems or substance abuse problems, uh, really kind of uh, is kind of interesting and, and sometimes sad in a way mm-hmm. uh, that the, the responsibilities and burdens put on them as judges uh, were were a real uh, just just a real a real uh, burden on their ability to function. So uh, definitely from the somber to the silly with the justice of the peace in a gorilla suit. <laughs> right, right, right. It, 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 they just ran the gamut. So you were appointed to the district court by President Bush in 2001, where you served until your appointment by President Trump to the Fifth Circuit in 2018. So right. tell me about the transition from being a solo trial judge to being one of 18, on uh, one of 17 on the appeals court. Well, Elizabeth, it's kind of a trade-off. Um, I sat on this court by designation, the circuit court by designation, maybe eight or nine times over the years, and uh, it was really a pleasure to do so. I was honored to be asked to come sit over here. Of course, my building is right next door, so I don't know whether they were asking me <laughs> because <laughs> of my intellect or because it was just so convenient and inexpensive for me to grab my robe and go across the little courtyard here. Um, but I, I knew what the court did, the circuit court did, and uh, I, I enjoyed trying cases, especially the criminal cases were very interesting. Um, I enjoyed the court staff and dealing with the lawyers for the most part, but I also enjoyed over here, and I continued to enjoy the intellectual uh, stimulus of what what is brought up on appeal, and I especially enjoy working with the judges on this court um, they're all just so intelligent and so insightful. I have learned so much after 16 and a half years on the district court bench. I have learned so much in the last 20 months that I've been on the circuit <laughs> that I didn't know. Uh, and I really, it's it's a credit to not only the lawyers who bring the cases here, but to my colleagues who have kind of given me a new way of thinking about things uh, when they're briefed on appeal. So it's a trade-off, but I'm enjoying it a great deal here. Uh, it, it's been everything I've, I've hoped for. Now, I want to talk about one case that you heard uh, when you were on the trial court. It's perhaps the most famous case you were involved in, the Danziger Bridge shooting after Hurricane Katrina. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, that case, and you're, you're correct, that's probably the case that I think is the most significant in my years on the district court and the one that I think I think about the most um, it's a very sad case, like most post-Katrina events. Um, it's a very sad case. It's really three cases in one, and it's about, in my mind, it's always about the institutional integrity of the criminal justice process and the entire 
judiciary and how we handle criminal complaints. By way of background, and I won't digress into all the facts, when I say three cases, the first case uh, was brought against one of the victims. Um, there were two, two people were killed on the Danziger Bridge. Uh, another gentleman uh, was a civilian, was framed by local police officers and criminal charges brought against him, which were then dismissed. Um, he was outraged, of course, and uh, he and the other, I think there are three, I want to say three or four families involved. Um, his brother, who was a handicapped young man, was one of the people who was killed on the bridge. So that was the first case, was the case that was where, where he was framed, including the planting of a, of a handgun. Uh, the second case, of course, is the case brought by the Department of Justice against the police officers, and that's the case that I tried. Uh, in that in that case, uh, we had about a almost a seven-week trial. Uh, I thought the lawyering in it was terrific. Uh, I, I devoted a lot of time and energy to the case, and I think everything went without a hitch in terms of trial procedure, jury selection, jury deliberation. I thought everything went without a hitch. They were convicted. Um, the troubling thing about that part of the case was the, the sentencing. Uh, it was a 924 case where there was stacking of mandatory minimum consecutive sentences. So it really took sentencing out of the district judge's hands. Uh, the sentences were, you know, one one had a minimum of 65 years, I believe, before we got into any area of discretion. Um, we also had cooperating defendants whose stories shifted quite a bit, depending on whether they were cooperating or not. So that was kind of disturbing as well. The mandatory minimums really bothered me. Uh, but it came out later, and this I view as the third part of the case, that some of the prosecutors in the Department of Justice or people related to the prosecutors uh, had conducted a social media campaign over years, the years it took to develop this case and try it, and during the case, mm -hmm. uh, a social media campaign to post comments about the case and say disparaging things about the defense lawyers and about the testimony. Uh, and I found that very, very disconcerting. Uh, I wound up granting a new trial in the case, which was upsetting to me personally because I felt like we conducted such a, a, a good trial uh, I granted a new trial, and I lost a lot of sleep over the case. Probably professionally, <laughs> as an adult, I have lost more sleep over that uh, in terms of professional activities than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I worked on the opinion. There's a 129-page opinion that I wrote. It took me all summer to write it, and uh, it was a case that really stays with me quite a bit. I'm thankful that the victims continued to have faith in the process. They mm -hmm. continued to want to come to court to, to be vindicated. We didn't have any violence associated with it, like you see in a lot of these police misconduct cases. So I'm happy about that. Uh, and I think in the end, they, the, the defendants pled in the end. I granted the new trial, the Fifth Circuit affirmed, um, and the defendants then entered a plea and did a what I consider to be a significant amount of jail time. Some of them had 10 years. They, that was, it was greatly reduced from the mandatory minimums. The government agreed to reduce sentences. Uh, but they were still, I mean, 10 years is a decade. Mm -hmm. I think one of them had 12 years. And um, I, I think in the end, there's a lot to be learned from that case. 
on so many different levels. Um, it's just a case that really stays with me quite a bit. And uh, I, I think in the end, justice was done. Well, shifting gears a bit, uh, do you have any traditions with your law clerks or anything you especially like to do with them? Well, I like to hear about the, uh, the types of TVs or movies that they like, uh, what their families are like. Some of them have had married and have children, so that's always interesting. Um, we started the king cake tradition, although we've done that every year during Mardi Gras time. I have in my office a frame. The, the court has provided us a sketch of the beautiful Fifth Circuit building and has had it framed on the back of the framed sketch uh, each clerk signs and puts the years that he or she served as a clerk. So that's sort of like our inside little joke uh, <laughs> that, that once you sign on, uh, you know, you're 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 always going to be in my chambers. Your signature will be there. Um, none of them have taken up running. Um, well, some of them run, but they don't run as early as I do. So <laughs> I haven't been able to entice any of them out to run in the wee hours of the morning. So a lot of SCOTUS 101 listeners are law students or young lawyers just starting out. So what do you wish you had known when you were first starting out as a lawyer? I think the first thing is to pick a great mentor. And I didn't purposefully pick one. I was very fortunate to have people that I practiced law with uh, who I respected at the time and came to learn later that they were real preeminent in their field. And I learned a lot from them that has helped me to this day. My advice to young lawyers would be to try as many cases as you can. Try to get into court as often as you can. And if you are not in a position to do that, try to go watch as many trials as possible. I always tell the people from the law firms around here, the, the downtown New Orleans law firms, that they should send their young associates to see criminal trials where the lawyers are working. I used to say working without a net. They don't have discovery. Uh, they have the witness on the stand, and you can see the wheels turning in their heads, and they may have some grand jury testimony. But I think seeing those lawyers operate in front of a jury would give a young lawyer an opportunity to see how things are done. Go see a judge pick a jury. Ask the judge if you can kind of sit in when the peremptories are used. Uh, I think that would be helpful. Remember that your reputation is important, and it takes a whole career to build a mm -hmm. reputation and a single day to ruin it. Uh, uh, young lawyers need to understand that. Um, and then the, the last piece of advice I'll give them is that there is life outside of practicing law. <laughs> <laughs> Weekends are important. You'll have work to do on weekends sometimes. If you have a trial on a Monday, you'll probably work all weekend. But you have to remember that uh, having hobbies is a good thing. Uh, you, you need some separation from your work, uh, whether it's, uh, again, running or uh, fishing, playing golf or what have you. Uh, you really do need to add to your quality of life. Because the law can sometimes, you can immerse yourself in it and uh, lose sight of really important personal things. It can certainly become all-consuming. So now, if you hadn't become a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing today? Well, I was interested in becoming a veterinarian, but I don't like the sight of blood, and I would <laughs> find that to be emotionally <laughs> very uh, upsetting to see you know, poor animals that, that uh, uh, were not in the best condition. Um, I wanted to be a history professor also at the college level because, as I said, I'm a bit of a history geek. Um, but this will surprise you. What I really enjoy watching is a good 
bartender, a mixologist, uh, make a drink from scratch. So <laughs> deep down in my, my darkest secret is that I would love to be a bartender at a really nice restaurant or bar here in New Orleans where I could actually make the drink. And I'm not a good bartender myself, but I have to learn. But I just love watching how they mix things and the little shave of, of an orange <laughs> or something like that. And how do they know just the right amounts? And it's just really fascinating. Yeah, it's like a mix of being an artist and also being a chemist. <laughs> Correct. Correct. It's re- it, and it takes talent. I mean, you have to know what you're doing or you'll, you'll ruin the drink. You know? yeah. Well, one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Oh, I was hoping you would you would ask that. Um, you know, the, my, my first reaction to the question would be um, Robert Jackson. Uh, he was involved in so many things during the Roosevelt years and you know, being attorney general and solicitor mm-hmm. general. And, of course, in the post-war prosecution of uh, the Nazis and just a, a, a career that I think would be very, very interesting to hear him talk about all of the different things he did. The other person that I would like to have spoken to would be Edward Douglas White, who was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for 11 years, starting in 1920, but he was on the Supreme Court for 27 years. He's the only Louisianan (laughs) to be be selected for the Supreme Court. He's from a place called Thibodeau, which is south of New Orleans in Terrebonne Parish. He was a U.S. senator, actually was a prisoner of war. He was a Confederate soldier, young soldier who was a prisoner of war briefly in 1865 on the Louisiana Supreme Court. And he also is one of the two statues in the U.S. Capitol, the other being Huey Long, of course. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I think Edward Douglas White is sort of a creature of his time. Mm-hmm. He would be viewed as controversial today. and But I think his career kind of like Robert Jackson, is one that spans a lot of historical episodes. Well, it sounds like those would both be fantastic people to have a conversation with. Well, Judge Englehart, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been my pleasure. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Mardi Gras edition. Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. I went to Mardi Gras last year, and it was incredible. It's not all what you hear on the news. If you go with the locals, Louisianans, <laughs> then it's a blast. Okay. First question. Yes. A 2015 case from the Fifth Circuit involved trademark and copyright infringement of this traditional Mardi Gras accessory. Oh. There's a lot of traditional Mardi Gras accessories. Hmm. Though I don't know if I remember all of their their names. Um, this is a... Is it like the most popular one, like beads? Yes, Mardi Gras beads. <laughs> so uh, the the center of this case was a, a trademarked Mardi Gras bead dog um, that uh, a bakery was putting on um, on top of their cakes, and then somebody else started making a very similar Mardi Gras bead dog. So that was that case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question. Uh, Justice Edward Douglas White is the only Louisianan to serve on the Supreme Court. He was first appointed as an associate justice and later as chief justice. Hmm. And um, he was not President Grover Cleveland's first choice for the job. Do you know how many other people Cleveland nominated before selecting White? And this was to be associate justice. Um, I'm going to say three. 
Very close. It's two. Okay. He nominated um, William Hornblower and Wheeler Hazard Peckham, whose brother Rufus would later go on to uh, serve yes. on the Supreme Court, and he was nominated by Cleveland later. Chief Justice Hornblower would have been hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, third question. The creator of this New Orleans sports mascot sued Universal Studio for copying his design in its Happy Death Day horror movie series. What? You got to say that again. Okay. So the creator of this New Orleans sports mascot okay. sued Universal Studios for copying his design of the mascot. In its Happy Death Day horror movie series. Happy Death Day. There are a couple of these movies. Slasher films. Oh, I have no idea. Okay. I have it's, no clue. Um, it's the uh, King Cake Baby. Oh. The mascot of the New Orleans Pelicans, the NBA team. Oh, well, I, I guess it's an alternative mascot. I didn't know the King Cake Baby was a mascot. That's really creepy. Um, well, I don't know if you've ever seen King Cake Baby the mascot, but it is terrifying. So I can see why uh, the universal people maybe wanted to borrow <laughs> its likeness. But the creator, Jonathan uh, Berticelli, sued for $200 million, saying the mask worn by the killer in the 2017 and 2019 Happy Death Day films r- ripped off King Cake Baby's iconic blend of sinister, happy, and awkward, childish delirium. That's terrifying. Also, why would that be the Pelican's mascot? Why wouldn't they have a pelican? I think – I'm guessing it's it's like a secondary mascot. Oh, OK. Like I went to Xavier and we're the musketeers, but we also have this thing called the blue blob. <laughs> and it's literally just a big – a man in a big blue blob that has like a big floppy tongue. And, you know, like he's been on ESPN and like in, in commercials and things and everybody knows the blue blob and nobody, I guess, cares about D'Artagnan or um, musketeer. Anyway, so that's like king cake baby. OK. Uh, fourth question. Uh, the Seventh Circuit found that a prisoner's refusal – a prison's refusal to accommodate this dietary re- request constituted a violation of um, the free exercise of religion. Huh. Well, if it's – if this is Mardi Gras themed, <laughs> it's got to be either jambalaya or gumbo <laughs> um, <laughs> or king cake. <laughs> no. Uh, those are all good – um, good guesses, but it was a meatless diet on Fridays during Lent. <laughs> oh, okay. That so, makes a lot more sense. Yeah, this was a 2009 case, uh, Nelson versus Miller. But, you know, in Louisiana, um, the bishop has determined that alligator does not constitute meat um, for purposes of Lent. So I've heard that. Interesting. Alligator counts as a seafood? I guess. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it lives in the water. It's weird, but it's it like, I don't know. It's a reptile. Yeah, but it what tastes about more like chicken than I don't know if there's an official opinion about frogs. Mm, yeah, might have to look into it. Yeah, or like turtle soup. What, what would turtle? Yeah, I'm qualify as we got to get to the, sure. we got to do some research. Yeah, we'll get the interns on this. <laughs> okay, final question. During the 2019 Mardi Gras celebration, which Supreme Court justice was featured on a float? Wait, twenty nine. Not, not the not the actual justice, but oh, um, I was like, I was there in twenty nineteen, <laughs> and I did not see a justice on a float. And I have great Article three dar. Yeah, I can <laughs> identify a judge from a mile away. It was honoring this justice. Um, I mean, it must be 
Justice Ginsburg. Of course. Uh, The float was named the dissenter on the roof and featured a uh, likeness of the notorious RBG holding a gavel and a sign that says break tradition. Interesting. I think you did a pretty good job. (laughs) Thanks. uh, With Mardi Gras slash Lent slash Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) trivia well thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101 be sure to subscribe on Spotify iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and please leave us a five star rating please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions comments or ideas for future episodes you've been listening to SCOTUS 101 brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.